What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have John Lyons, a senior marketer who's been through some interesting times, as they say in recent years. We're going to talk about career fails, career setbacks. We're going to have a D and M, Aussie talk for deep and meaningful talk. John, welcome to Sweathead. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. Now, you've been tweeting up a storm, tweeting up a storm about your journey over the past few years. You've been through some stuff. Where do you want to start, John? Early part of my career was kind of accidentally very successful. And you'll recognize some of this from your journey as well, I guess. But through my sort of nightclub connections, I used to do nightclub visuals. And so I fell into doing nightclub visuals and then digital web design. And whilst being an architect, basically, and I found myself with an agency. That went really well for 10 years. We were acquired. I then launched a, a UK, Europe office of a, of a global US digital agency. And that went quite well for 10 years. And then I guess it was probably around so 2015, I had a son. And that was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. 2016, I lost my brother. And that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. That was something that I mention now because it, it's been part of the backdrop of the last few years, ups and downs. So I kind of left my second agency 2018, I think, 2019, spent a bit of time in consultancy trying to find my feet, rocked up at a great agency for a while. Things were going well, and then we went into lockdown. And I know we've all been through lockdown. We've all been through the, the kind of hits and misses there. I went into lockdown having just started a, a great job, a great agency group that was designed for me. I kind of met the CEO and he just kind of said, we're going to do something together. What should we do? What do you want to do? It's amazing. We'd just had our long-awaited second child, a daughter, so we got the perfect pair. We were looking at a forever home. And then the lockdown came. Our tiny little London flat didn't work for us. And um, unfortunately, my marriage kind of broke down in that first lockdown. My wife moved out with the kids, so that would have been, well, 2020. We're here a couple of years later, and we're kind of at a point now where we have an understanding that whilst we haven't really talked about it, and I, I think it would be good in particular for her to talk about a little bit more because as I'll go on to, I've, I've kind of had the opportunity to speak and uh, seek some help, but it took me in a very dark place. I was isolated at home, remote working without my kids. That meant everything to me. And the only thing that got me through losing my brother was my son. And so not having my son, I hit a very dark place. Depression led to suicidal thoughts. Everything was planned. I was talked into seeing my GP by a very good friend who I'd got to know through our lovely little corner of Twitter, Jem Higgins, kind of forced me to speak to my GP. And that kind of set me back on the road. So I still didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel. But with medication and a bit of therapy, the edge had been taken off. And so I'd kind of settled into the new role. I'd started settling into the new life, moved to this little flat out here in Essex, where I am now, kind of 10 minutes down the road from where my wife lives. I now have the kids half the time, which is great. And then I saw what I thought was just a job that I couldn't not look at. So a role in the loyalty team at Lego, which is for me, not just a childhood passion, but as a marketer, it's a brand that I've long admired. As an agency guy, as I was for probably the best part of 20 years, it was to me the brand I wanted to work with most. And I managed to bag them as a client at one of my agencies. And to be able to work in-house, they just seemed like a dream for me. So I'd kind of gone from very low to very high 
whether or not I was balanced is another thing. But unfortunately, that didn't last. It didn't work out for various reasons. But you know, I've kind of coming out of that now, much more settled with it. But it's been getting the gig at Lego, loving the idea of being at Lego, and then finding that actually the job was killing me was some huge ups and downs, and took a lot of adjusting to. That's quite a seven-year period, right? And we're going to dig into this. This is literally just going to be a deep and meaningful talk between a couple of people who happen to be recording it. Did the sort of darkness start around seven years ago, or can you see connections to earlier parts of your life? I'd had a couple of periods of depression earlier, but nothing to that extent. I very much defined myself by my family by my nuclear family. And um, it's something kind of when I met my wife, she kind of commented on because her family is structured quite differently. They're much more traditional kind of upper middle class British. So, you know, the family brings up the children, then they fly the nest and they build their own families. Whereas kind of myself, my then two brothers, my mum, because dad had died by then and was out of the equation from when I was about 11 years old, we lived in each other's pockets and it was always highs and lows. So when there were lows, they were pretty cutting. When they were highs, they were fantastic. But unfortunately, my youngest brother, he came along at a time the family was fairly broken. My dad was an alcoholic. The situation with him being around wasn't working. And actually having this little kid, beautiful little kid to focus on, I think brought the rest of us together. Unfortunately, when he died, yeah, those kind of chasms came out again. So, you know, kind of the relationship in the family had gone to a large extent too. But it really was like nothing I've ever experienced at that stage, certainly. And it's something I did um, cognitive behavior therapy at the time, which allowed me to function, but I don't think I'd really dealt with the loss. So that really came back and hit me when I felt like I was losing my son. Can you describe your depression? Like, how did it make you feel or not feel? How did you spend your days? How did you wrestle with it? So my son was one when my brother died. I was just numb. I didn't like the world as it was. The world wasn't right anymore. It just didn't make sense. Just for a bit of context. So, you know, my, my youngest brother is seven years younger than me. He was born at a time where my parents' relationship was pretty much failing. So I was his father figure. And he was probably as close to a son as I could have had until I had a son. And we were also really good mates. We used to hang out a lot. So his friends were my friends. My friends were his friends. He had a kid years before I did. I was kind of um, an old dad. He was much younger. So I was taking advice from him about parenting. We were hanging out together. I was his father figure. He was such a central part of my world. And to lose him just made no sense at all. I spent a long time just trying to get in my head how I can get through this new version of life and be there for my son when every single day hurts. I felt knotted inside. I felt numb in the head. I was constantly trying to talk myself around. I think as a strategist, you'd probably understand that process where you, you kind of try to intellectualize yourself out of things. And the closest that I ever got to anything that made any sense, and of course, it doesn't really make any sense, but there was a day when I managed to kind of tell myself that if I could fast forward 18 years, know that my son is okay, and then end it, I would do, but I can't, so I need to hang around. And that strangely kind of helped me reset a little bit. I'd stopped functioning. I was functioning at work. I was looking after my son, but I wasn't really a human. I had no personality or character. You know, I'd, I'd stopped reading. I'd stopped listening to music. I'd stopped watching TV. I'd stopped cooking. I'd stopped seeing people. I used to fear seeing anybody that I knew because I didn't want to answer the question of how are you. So I kind of withdrew into myself massively. Is this 
2016 for a little bit or is this since that time? It's kind of 2016, probably into 2017. I had a rough time in 2018. Yeah, I knew it was time to leave the agency, but that was something that was, again, kind of played on my mind a little bit. And I'd also, just to add to the joy of the story, I'd also been diagnosed with skin cancer, which was treatable and was treated, but it took a long time to get treated. And there was a lot of mucking about. One of the things that makes me proudest of my nation is the National Health Service. Unfortunately, it's also massively stretched. So my mind fell apart in 2018. I'd done CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, I think in 2017, but 2018, uh, no, it was 2018, actually, sorry. I had to go and see my GP. My wife had kind of said, you need to do something. You can't carry on like this. And I knew she was right. That's when I did the CBT. So I'd been a hollow shell of myself probably for a couple of years. And it was 2018 that I kind of got in and dealt that and really sort of, I wouldn't say reinvented myself, but reinvigorated myself 2019. It was a nice change coming out of what had been because of the acquisition, kind of in effect 20 years in the same role, albeit two companies, because, you know, first agency was acquired and I took over as MD of the Europe branch using the second agency. It was a chance to really find myself again. And I think it was probably around that time that I really started getting into Twitter as well. You mentioned that around that time you felt the world wasn't right. Outside's not right. It's not fair. I'm going to withdraw. How did you feel towards yourself? I didn't really think about myself other than protecting myself. So protecting myself from conversations that I didn't know that I had the strength to have. Everything else was really focused on David should be here. His son, who would have been, what, six at that time, my boy was one. One of the other things that kind of set me right a little bit was, I'm struggling here. I don't want to be here, but I can't put my son through what my brother's son is going through. I wasn't really thinking about myself. I was more thinking about my son. That was before my daughter was born. But in all honesty, I wasn't thinking about the rest of my family. I wasn't thinking about my wife. I was focusing in on him to try to keep me on the straight and narrow. I think you're describing your depression around then as a withdrawal from a world that you did not want to deal with anymore, right? Yeah. Some people withdraw because they don't like themselves. They have a sense of low self-worth, for example, but that doesn't sound like it was part of what was going on at the time. Is that correct? Yeah. No, I think that's fair. And so people around someone who withdraws like that might think that the withdrawer is being selfish. Did that come up in your interactions with people? Yes, it did to a degree. I think my wife made it fairly clear that I was making it impossible to have a relationship with, that I needed to snap out of it. I think some of my closest friends have known that I've kind of had um, little bouts in the past and, and kind of were very good at knowing when to step out. But a couple, I mean, you know, to bless him. He would regularly, but not too regularly, just drop me a little line every now and again. Just checking you're okay. That was okay. It was kind of, I panicked when people were trying to get me out to have a conversation now. But you were still working. I was still working. And um, actually, I I led a big pitch within a week, I think, of my brother dying. As I said, I withdrew from any, any kind of pleasure. Any kind of pleasure just felt frivolous to me. But I went out and celebrated an award win with our, our clients, Manchester United. So I was able to put a game face on at work. But yeah, it's very much kind of tears of clown. As soon as I wasn't in work mode, I was functioning as a parent and that was it. So you were either withdrawn or in some kind of robotic role that you knew how to act out, but in which you weren't fully alive. You mentioned around 2018, I think it was, that your mind fell apart. Describe that for us. What happened? I still hadn't really dealt with the issues around my brother. 
that was kind of still there. And, you know, I was still a partial human at best. It's sort of coming to the end of my time at the agency that I co-founded. Whilst I knew it was the right thing to do, it led me to question a lot. And it actually led to me feeling really quite isolated and exposed. Because for 20 years, I'd been my own boss and um, at companies that I have founded or co-founded. And I was going out into the wild and I suddenly realized that I didn't know what I did. I couldn't put my finger on where my value was at. And I remember kind of talking to my then business partner and best friend and best man. So, you know, kind of Ricky was our technical director, brilliant developer. And I remember saying to him, yeah, you're a developer. You're a brilliant developer. You can get a job doing development. What is it I even do? What is it I even do that has value? So there was a kind of fear of the unknown going out there. Also, kind of whilst I'd been an agency guy for 20 years, there were agencies that I kind of founded. And so I wasn't exposed to the structure of agency land and the job titles, the roles, and you know the specifics of maybe what a strategist is, or even the copywriter, things that I'd come across dealing with other agencies, but I didn't have that knowledge of kind of where I sat. So there was a bit of fear there. And then there was the whole kind of dragging on of the cancer thing. And those things together just kind of just crashed. It came to a point where I started to get real anxiety. I'd be waking up with just fears, not wanting to get out of bed, fearing switching on my email, just massive anxiety. Yeah, that's kind of when I took my wife's advice or order. I don't know which it would be, but it was a good thing. I went to see my doctor. He basically said, you need to take some time off of work. You need to take some time to focus. And he signed me off work for a couple of weeks and um, suggested cognitive behavior therapy. Okay. And the time off really helped. The CBT massively helped. I was able to go from a completely non-functioning to a partially functioning human. So I was able to kind of speak to people, watch TV. There are still things that I haven't managed to get back into. I used to read a lot of fact and fiction. I read a lot now, but I read trade books. I read marketing books. I haven't read fiction since my brother died. And I can't connect in my own head doing something as frivolous as reading fiction still. Right. I can just about deal with watching something frivolous on TV. Look, I love these conversations. I could have this conversation. I could go anywhere for hours and hours on end. There are people listening. I'm not playing psychologists. There's just a couple of things I want to point out. The reason that I do it is because I've gone through stuff too, and I still go through stuff. And I just think it's important to have these conversations pretty unedited as well. So I don't think John and I are going to apologize for where we go with this. I'm not playing it psychologist. Use the word structure, but it sounds like you had a series of realities just get shattered. You had the family when you were younger broke a little bit. That probably affected you in certain ways. And then when you lost your brother, that's obviously another reality shattering. And sorry, I'm literally going to repeat what you said to me, which could trigger or not. Uh, skin cancer, shattered reality around health. Losing brother, shattered reality around how you wanted to deal with the world. Then there was your role in a company or in, in an industry, which kind of shattered. Like that's exponential shattering. Because then it's like, what do I even do with my day? I don't know who I am or what I want. I don't know how to live. Is that a fair summary of where you were at a certain point? Yeah, absolutely. When you say at some point that you didn't know what you did, talk a bit more about that because that that might strike people as a bit strange that you're 20 years into working in an industry, you'd had big roles, very senior, important work. How do you get to the point where you don't know what you're doing in life or you don't know what value you have to offer to the world? I think the thing was that as a managing director or as a business founder, and particularly in an agency space, so I kind of went from being the talent at the beginning of my career and I was freelance, it was a sideline, and more people wanted me than I could deliver to. So I ended up bringing on a few people and that's where the agency came from. 
20 years down the line, I was disconnected from that. So I still had the same inquisitive nature. I still wanted us to be doing great work. But other than the fact that I couldn't pin my skill set onto one title, I think is where I struggled. The conversation I had at the time was, if I was to look on a job board, what am I looking for? Managing director? Is someone going to employ me to run their agency? Is that really likely to happen? What, what's my skill set? You do so much as an MD. So you know, you're involved in, as I came to learn later, some of these things ended up becoming part of my, whatever you might call it, second career, third career, who knows? But you know, you're responsible for overseeing the operation to some degree. You're responsible for the kind of the marketing, the business development. I was always quite hands-on. I've always been an ideas guy. So I loved getting involved in the concepting. And at that point, because I hadn't been through the traditional agency route, I didn't realize that kind of that's what copywriters do. It, to me, copy I had in my head is writing. Actually, part of my skill set and, and some of the best pitches that we won were down to what in reflection, I'm able to look back and see as, as copywriting skill. So one of the big wins that we had uh, was for Manchester United, and we developed their, their most successful promotion ever. And we won it off the back of what I called the campaign. But I didn't know that that's what it was. So I'm kind of sat there saying, okay, well, I've kind of been shuffling paper and moving things around. Is that really marketable skill? I'm not a designer. I'm too far away from that now. I'm not a designer. I'm not a developer. I'm not a writer. I'm a kind of bit of a jack of all trades. When I left and you know, I kind of took the exit, so I had some cash, I didn't have to rush into anything. And I thought, I'd give this portfolio career a go. I'll kind of set myself up as a consultant. In my mind, having come from pre-social and even to some degree pre-Google digital area, era, a lot of the stuff I really enjoyed working on when I was still that creative were creative digital campaigns, kind of you know, creating destinations, creating whether or not it's games or video functions. We did a lot of stuff in the entertainment area. So I thought I was a creative digital marketer because that's kind of what we sold through the businesses. When I came out and tried to start the consultancy, I realized that digital marketing was now something completely different. It was much more of an engineering side of things. And I understood SEO. I could do SEO. I understood pay-per-click. I could kind of do that, but they weren't my specialities. My speciality was the big idea. And so I come out thinking that I'm a creative digital guy, realized that actually there wasn't much call for creative digital guy. But people that had known me, business contacts and some personal contacts, they saw the value in what I'd managed to do establishing and growing businesses in the marketing space. And so as a consultant, you know, I picked up two or three clients who were small, maybe new agencies that didn't quite know how to position themselves and win their market. And that's not something that I realized was my skill set. Probably until a few months in of doing that for these people that wanted me to do it for them, I didn't realize that that was probably my skill, that it probably had a name. What age are you going through this? I mean, I would have been in my 40s, kind of early to mid 40s. I'm kind of kicking towards 50 now. This is an obvious observation, but when you talk about not being able to put your finger on your value, you're obviously talking about your value to other people. It's interesting. One of the things we fear most as we get old, according to research, is not being useful. You know, so grandparents often fear that if they're isolated and not being able to contribute to the family or the community, not being useful is something that is one of the things we dread the most. Some people wrestle with this throughout their lives, what you're talking about. For some people, it happens at a young age. Do you feel there was extra turbulence because you're like, hang on, I should have worked this stuff out years ago? Yeah, I did. I've never been someone that's kind of looked forward in my career in terms of planning next steps. I kind of throw myself into stuff and want to make the best of it. 
I tend not to go in with a plan B, which has kind of, you know, has come back and bit me on the ass again recently. I knew I was doing good stuff. I knew I was making a difference. I didn't know how that could transfer somewhere else. It was almost like an SEO thing in my head. I couldn't even tell you the search terms I need to look for to find the kind of role that I thought I might be able to do. And people were telling me, you're great at what you do. And I remember a couple of people going back to Ricky as well. He was saying, but you're brilliant at what you do. You're one of the best I've ever worked with. You'll be snapped up in no time. But doing what? With what job title? What is it I'm looking for? What is it I can tell people I can do? That was quite difficult. I mean, I had the comfort of the exit money. So I didn't need to worry for some time about you know, putting food on the table. That meant that I could kind of bounce around a little bit for a while and kind of, you know, find my place, listen to people, speak to people. Probably reviewed it maybe every three to six months. And I'd say we, because, you know, I wanted to be honest and open with my wife. Yeah, we're not together now, but we were then. So it was a case of, you know, look, this is where I am with the finances. This is where I am with the the consultancy. Still haven't spent the amount that I allotted. So I think let's give it another three months. And so we kind of continued doing that. And um, it sort of went on to nine to 12 months and it was going okay. I was having some really great meetings with people. Again, this is kind of a late realization. Shouldn't have been. I came to realize that actually all the stuff I was doing to drive inbound leads, was kind of a waste of time in comparison to me just being out there and working my network and being visible. And on reflection, I'd set up the reporting and the sales CRM at the previous agency, kind of not just for the Europe office, but for the global office, the US office. And what we'd managed to see was that actually the majority of new business that we were bringing through was through personal networks, through recommendations. I should have realized that that was likely to, that should have been, but I wanted to refresh myself on all areas of digital marketing. So I gave myself a budget, did email, did social, did some PPC, did some SEO, blah, 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 because I wanted to re-educate myself on all of it anyway, but ultimately realized that it was helping other people maybe implement that, do a bit of the marketing, do a bit of the sales structure that I was good at. And so I still had money to spend. And as it was kind of coming up to 12 months, I was intro to a really interesting guy who ended up becoming my next boss. We originally met to talk about consultancy work that I might do for one of his three businesses or even his wife's art business. It was a great meeting of minds. And the funny thing there was when we agreed to work together, he asked me what I wanted my, my role to be, my title to be. And I said, I don't fucking know. I haven't known for years. If you spend your days trying to get into people's heads, but are interested in strategy classes, books, and events that get into your head, visit sweathead.com. You can pick up the Kickstarter-funded book, Strategy Is Your Words, by me. Find out about our monthly membership, online classes, and the company training that we do. Yes, this was an ad, a gentle, gentle ad. Back to the interview. You did mention that the most recent job, I'm not trying to get you to criticize where you were working because these things are always a combination of environment and us and everything else, but like, you did say that that job was killing you. What was going on? I as said before, I was in love with Lego as a product as a kid. I was in love with the brand as a grown-up, as a marketer, and it was my dream client win. Bearing in mind, you know, 20 years agency side, I'd never really had any thought or intention about going client side until the last agency I was at where, you know, as I described just now, they brought me in, Nick at NDL said, you know, look, let's come up with your own role and just cover this briefly. So I had this lovely role where all I needed to do was come up with cool ideas, pitch and win. Amazing. It's like, oh shit, that's taken away all the stuff that used to grind me down about work. And you've just given me the thing that I enjoy most. Are you sure that I can pay you back enough? I can earn you enough just by doing this? And it turned out pretty cool. But then we went into lockdown, the pandemic came about and 
the business needed to kind of take a closer look at itself. And I was a willing participant, but I was kind of pulled more into the leadership team. And we saw lots of holes. You know, we, we saw lots of lots of holes in terms of where money wasn't being spent, where it was being spent, where opportunities were being missed. And so I ended up kind of taking ownership of trying to make sense of the finances across these three businesses in the group that all kind of work together and sell stuff to each other, but none of the numbers were adding up. And what we kind of realized was that actually we need a strategy. We need a brand strategy. We need a sales strategy and we need a marketing strategy. And so I kind of worked on that at the latter time of my, uh, my period there whilst also kind of still overseeing the studio, which is the kind of creative stuff. And I really started to enjoy that strategic planning, the brand planning, the kind of, you know, delivering and implementing sales strategies as well. Suddenly I'm starting to think, you know, at some point in the future, maybe client side could be for me. And then this role came up, senior manager of loyalty proposition at the Lego group for the VIP program, which I was familiar with. It was one of the teams I'd worked with at the previous agency. I remember thinking that would be a great job for somebody. And I think I even maybe commented on the post, you know, which was by my former client, that'd be a great job for somebody. I couldn't get it out of my head. So applied, had a great interview process. Everything went well for all the right reasons. It's an arduous interview process, but ultimately my, my business proposition, which you kind of, I put together for the final stage of the interview, we ended up actually delivering that project, which is amazing. You know, it's kind of a potential game changer. But anyway, I went into a new environment during the pandemic with a team that had lost a couple of people at senior manager level, including my predecessor. And I found it very difficult finding my feet to start with in a different culture, very different culture to what I was used to, and a different business to what I was used to, and a very, very complex business. There's many, many moving parts. What I found there is that everything I thought the role was going to be wasn't quite the case. The things that I thought I was going in to do, I think I did pretty well with, to be honest. My business pitch for interview was... I believe that the program is missing a lot of Lego lovers and Lego fans because you can only use the program if you buy directly from Lego brand retail stores or lego.com. And if you don't live near one of those retail stores, you're probably not going to buy from lego.com. You're going to buy from Amazon or you're going to buy from your local store, you know, whatever it is. And so I kind of proposed that we do a test integration with Target who I'd worked with on Nerf Perks loyalty program in the past. So I knew that they were kind of responsive and they were one of the better partners on that program. And uh, we launched that actually this August. It was one of the last things that I did before leaving. That kind of stuff worked really well. But actually my role became, for me, bogged down with reward management, which isn't something I've got any experience with. And maybe I should have looked after myself and kind of said, hey, I've not done this before. I didn't come here to do this either. Can we have a chat? But instead, I'll make this work. This is my dream job. And threw myself into it and probably ended up spending far too much time. I'd say anywhere between 60 to 80% of my time was spent on this additional part that wasn't really part of why I was hired, but it was just so all encompassing. And I got lost. I, I got lost in it. And I was constantly chasing my tail. I was constantly trying to stay on top of various degrees of deadlines. It's a very, very granular role, the reward manager. Everything has to be taken care of. I find it difficult anyway to go from overarching strategy, looking at that kind of macro level to deep down dirty in the granular. I can do both. I've always done a bit of both, but doing it on a day-to-day -day basis up and down, I was really struggling with and, and questioning myself in terms of why can I not do this? When I applied, it was clear and I raised this that I was overqualified or I might be seen as overqualified for the role. 
And that came back to me. So, you know, the hiring manager sort of said, well, you are, but I think you'll be a great fit. When I got through to the final stage, you have a head-to-head with VP of that division. So I had a head-to-head with the VP of retail marketing. And she kind of said, look, you're overqualified. I think you're great. Jason thinks you're great. We can both see what you can bring to the role, but you might find it hard going. So I'd already gone into a role that was kind of technically lower than my pay grade, if you like, but I was fine with that. When it got rescoped and to this reward thing, it was just out of my out of my skill set. But I wouldn't let myself fail. I kept telling myself, I need to do more. This is about me. I need to learn this. Why haven't I done this yet? So I was beating myself up at not being able to deliver. And I was beating myself up as well, not being able to feel like I was achieving. Well, seven years, like as you're describing your journey, I'm sort of imagining that nursery rhyme Humpty Dumpty and you're Humpty Dumpty, but instead of sitting on a wall, you're sitting on a staircase and each stair is a layer of reality. And as you fall off it, each layer smashes. And at the bottom, the king's horses and all the king's men, they can't put you back together again. That's your work to do. Yeah. How are you going about it? And I'd love to know, because you said you've done a little bit of therapy, are there a couple of epiphanies that arrive to you through therapy that are central to you now? I'm a practical person. I'm a doer. When I talked the first time around with my GP about the options, you know, he kind of thought counseling wasn't going to work for me. Cognitive behavior therapy is a much more focused doing thing. It really worked for me. It broke me apart and helped me build up a little bit again. And I had to list out all of the things that were once part of me that no longer were, and then put them in an order of of fear in terms of challenging them and facing them again. And, you know, kind of the lowest fear was probably allowing myself to watch a frivolous TV show. And the highest fear was speaking to my brother's friends who I used to hang out with. I met a friend for lunch and drinks yesterday, and we went to a pub in Covent Garden, which is kind of theatre lounge around here. And my brother was in musical theatre, by the way. And it was a pub that I used to go into and hang out with him and his friends all the time. I probably would have had absolute shudder of fear going in there two, three years ago. It didn't occur to me actually until right now. That's where I used to kind of hang out with those guys. So whilst I haven't rebuilt the friendships with them, I'm not as in fear of speaking to them, but I still kind of haven't quite got there with that. So that kind of really helped me rebuild myself as a bit of a human to allow myself to enjoy anything. One of the things that kind of was really important to me and something that I feel quite strongly about sharing, I guess, is medication. I was put on antidepressants and they made a massive difference. It hasn't made me feel like a zombie, as I feared. It's just kind of taken the edge off. I don't think I've lost any of the passion. I don't think I've lost any of the interest in kind of what I can do, what I can do. I still love spending time with the kids and, you know, I've kind of rediscovered my passion for marketing and kind of, you know, design and creativity and all these kind of things. But I don't have this nagging thing at the back of my head saying, yeah, but the world's not right anymore. The world will never be the same again. I, I've, I've managed to move on from that with medication. And, you know, I kind of, so kind of share, sharing that that's not a stigma, I think is, is quite important. But I think just kind of also, yeah, recognizing that, I guess this is part of the reason we're speaking and, and actually you wouldn't know this because I've never said it to you, but you played a big part in helping me get there. But just kind of accepting that vulnerability isn't defeat. One of the things that I did going into the first lockdown, I missed the office. I missed the environment of switching on. I missed the environment of conversation and buzz and having my brain working. And I got into the habit of listening to podcasts, of which Sweathead was one. I always liked and admired the way that you were quite 
reflective, quite introspective. And, you know, you would be vulnerable, you would be open. And um, I sort of kind of got to know Giles Edwards a little bit through Twitter. He asked me to do a isolated talk. And the one that always stood out to me, actually, there's two that always stood out to me and massively inspired me were your one and Derek Walker's. It just really impacted me because they were both so honest, so vulnerable. I realized that the only way that I could heal myself was actually talking to myself, listening to myself, being honest, and not being afraid to show vulnerability to myself and outside. And in fact, I now see it as a strength. And so, yeah, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Derek, for your parts in that. And thank you, Jem, for telling me to go and see my GP and getting onto the pills. Because it has made a major difference. And I don't have a fear of those things anymore. I don't feel a failure for that. I feel like I was kind of broken and needed mending. And yeah, the king's horses and the king's men, they did nothing for me. I guess the king's only really been here for a couple of days. Let's give him a bit of a break. You know, kind of, I've had to put myself back together again. And it's been through accepting, accepting failure, looking honestly into why it happened, not just blaming myself for everything, realizing that there was a situation that was probably likely to happen anyway. And even reflecting back onto my now failed marriage and realizing that actually looking back at some of the things that happened in the past, this was probably going to happen at some point anyway. So rather than seeing these things as failure, these are things that maybe would get brushed under a carpet if they hadn't happened, but they were probably likely to happen anyway. And so why was that? How do I deal with it? What do I need to look out for in the future for myself and for other people? Uh, had some tears well up. When you've been through the stuff that you've been through and you sort of have spent time in the darkness, for some of us, it's a lot of our lives, right? And when you try to do a lot of the work that we try to do, and sorry to flip the darkness with professional work, but I feel like a lot of the work that I do through Sweathead and strategies is trying to contribute light. I wouldn't do it if the darkness wasn't always there. But for me, I think it's going to be a lifelong wrestle with that sort of stuff. When you're talking about vulnerability, I just kind of got to the point where I can't handle anything other than that because everything else to me is fake. So when you talk about being frustrated with the world or the world reality as you knew it, not a good enough reality, I totally understand that. And then there's like the work of rebuilding and turning up and turning up and turning up and turning that into a habit, turning the light into more of a habit. Because sometimes for some of us, the darkness is always going to be there. Yeah. I'm not trying to get you to agree with that for you at all, but I, it's sort of where a lot of my energy comes from. And I, I always get nervous about saying that because you can pay a price for it. But like if I sit opposite people, they're not going to know that these voices are going on in my head or <laughs> whatever no. it is, right? Yeah. Sorry, just processing a little. If anything, kind of having that ability to unpack without championing yourself, I think is going to make you a better strategist. It's going to make you a better marketer because you're looking for the truths and you're not afraid to focus on what might not be pleasant truths, but they're there. Yeah. I know we're backing out into being intellectual about our work now, but it's, <laughs> it's funny because, you know, everybody loves insights, right? I feel like most insights come from pain. And if you can't handle dangerous truths or a bit of pain or a bit of sadness, you're just going to be writing crap that no one's going to pay attention to. That's what I, I feel. And that's not to say that strategy has to be depressing. <laughs> but, but like, there's going to be a bit of pain in it. That's where comedy comes from. That's where art comes Absolutely. from. Absolutely. pain. One final question, because I know the role of Twitter, you mentioned it earlier, Twitter's been important to you and finding a community there, and you've shared a lot of this journey on Twitter. When you think back about it now, how has Twitter affected your life? Massively, positively. I think I was looking at Twitter, as I think many people have, and some unfortunately still do, almost as a broadcast channel. And it's not. What I came to discover, I really discovered this after leaving the agency and kind of going into the consultancy and kind of restarting my digital life. 
Twitter for me became a place to see ideas, to talk about ideas, to debate, to discuss, not to be this kind of broadcast. It wasn't even thought leadership. It was just sales. I got no value out of doing that. I mean, I'll be honest, I picked up a couple of clients from doing it, agency side, but I sort of came in and just like, yeah, I, I want to find some interesting people to follow. And I kind of started with the book Eat Your Greens, which for me is probably the best overall marketing book out there because it covers so much. You know, I'm not saying it's the most important, but and so I ended up following a lot of people in that book and then kind of started picking up on other people in the circle and you know, started to get recommendations and you know the podcast started to come into play. And I was on the outskirts, kind of listening into these things and, and feeling really kind of really enjoying it, felt like I was learning and then eventually kind of had the confidence to communicate, to join in, which funnily enough is something that probably led to me starting my first agency because I, I was on, this is how old I am, I was on Usenet, kind of alt.html, talking about kind of web design when it was, um, when Netscape 1.1 was the new thing. I learned a lot there and I help teach a lot there it becomes a community and so twitter became that for me and i got to know a lot of great people and you know kind of got a lot of support one of the absolute greats bless him uh, yeah murray calder is someone that I, I got to know really well on twitter he became a mate and obviously sadly he died but the warmth that he gave i mean he, he was there asking how i was when he was coming towards the end because uh, he knew that i had kind of family issues with my wife and kids moving out and stuff there was this whole network of smart people that kind of understood the world that we were in. I was able to kind of test some theories I had. And, you know, I'm a marketing scholar. I'm not an expert, but I'm, I'm a scholar. I learn. I love learning. You know, I'm, I've done Mark, Mark Ritson's mini MBA in marketing. I'm doing the, the brand management course at the moment. I read lots and lots of books on marketing. And I love going back and reading the kind of original literature because I wasn't exposed to any of that as an architect come visual design guy to, oh shit, I've got a digital agency. So yeah, I, it just became a really strong place and we're all suffering. Everyone's struggling. And you know, so, some of it's on the public feed, some of it's DMs, but lots of people are having difficulties. Lots of people are struggling. And I see it now, you know, there's been a few people I've been speaking to over the last week who are having issues with relationships and life and um, that I've been through and I'll be speaking to them. People that I looked up to and admired, like you, you know, kind of here I am chatting with you. Don't know why you want to chat to me, Mark. I mean, my God, you can do better than this. Derek Walker, you know, I kind of chat with Derek Walker every so often now. We're kind of good buddies. I think there is something inherent in the digital experience that it's Twitter now where people are probably more willing to be open than they would be with yeah. people that they know and that they're sat in the room with. So I think people yep. are allowing themselves to be more vulnerable on Twitter. It makes a lovely place that sometimes turns into a shit heap. I relate to a lot of that. Rest in peace, Mario. We had a beverage together in New York in the Upper West Side, and I used to pass that after he passed away, and it would always bring a tear to my eye. But yeah, Twitter's good, and I, I totally understand what you're talking about there. It's good in the right corners, in the right corners for sure. The life of this kind of interview is interesting because I guarantee it's going to cross the path of someone who really needs it. And it's probably not going to be someone that either of us know very well. It could be someone who sort of knows you, probably someone who doesn't know you. But I guarantee you that you will have put words to things that they're going through in a way where they will see themselves, they'll feel recognized. And because of that, 
they'll be more likely to hopefully take some constructive action from it. And that's why I wanted to interview you in a relatively uninterrupted and and unfiltered way. So um, thank you for sharing your story. You know, this could be a bit of a clumsy question, to be honest, to end with. But if somebody is listening to this and they've withdrawn from the world, they feel quite isolated, they feel misunderstood, not understood by people around them, and they, they just don't know what to do, a series of realities have shattered for them. What could you possibly say to someone going through that right now at the epicenter of where you were a few years ago? I think the first thing is you've got to allow yourself the same kindness that you'd probably give others in that situation. That's the first thing. It's very easy to blame ourselves and to be hard on ourselves. And um, one of the things I learned growing up, and sorry, going back to this a little bit, but one of the things I learned growing up you know, with an alcoholic dad, I blamed him so much for what I saw as his decision making. And then as I become an adult, I supported friends who were going through the same, probably the same issues. And you just kind of realize that nothing's ever as straightforward as it looks. So, you know, allow yourself the same kindness that you probably allow for others and speak, speak to someone, speak to a stranger, Johnny Eager, find me on Twitter, drop me a line, ping me, DM me. It's so important to hear yourself saying this and actually realize that you've compounded the situation in your head. That's not a criticism because it's natural to do it. You know, our brains are strange things and, you know, they're designed to protect us in some ways. And quite often that means building a reality that's not really a reality. It kind of protects us, which is one of the reasons why I've I've kind of um, quite sanguine about what's happened with my marriage. I believe that that's what happened. And um, here we are. Be kind on yourself and um, speak to someone. People are there to listen. People are there to help. And believe me, there's a way out of it. I was at a point a couple of years ago where I was coming up to Christmas. My brother's birthday is in December. It was the first day that I'd ever been alone on his birthday after my wife had moved out with the kids. And it was the hardest day of my life. I struggled through all of it. And I was completely clear in my mind that I couldn't continue. It was too painful. It's not like I wanted to die, but I just couldn't take that pain any longer. I needed to end it. And the only way to do that was by killing myself. There was still enough logic in my brain, whether it's self-preservation, I don't know, to say, okay, but this is too close to Christmas. I can't ruin Christmas for the kids forever. So I sort of did a deal with myself where, okay, I've got from, oh, I don't know, let's say February, maybe March, until maybe October, November to do it. I knew what I was going to do. I knew how I was going to do it. I knew where I was going to do it. I'd sent over all of the details of my bank accounts, my phone, pin code, kind of savings, you name it, everything to my estranged wife. It was just a matter of time. It was going to be done. And then, as I say, kind of, it was Jem Higgins, Jemmy Red, who just made me talk. She made me talk. She wouldn't let me not talk and told me, go see my doctor. The funny thing is, I was going to end it by jumping in the river. Because, hey, River Thames, there's lots of bridges. So if someone comes along and tries to stop me on one, I can drive down to the next one and I can keep driving until I find one. And I can't swim. And it didn't occur to me until a couple of months after I'd started taking swimming lessons that, shit, I've just taken away. I've taken away what was going to be my out. It just felt like a natural thing to do. I'd moved on from that. And I still have bad days. I still have dark days. I'm still on the medication. So, you know, as I say, it takes the edge off. But even though... What I thought was going to be the dream job didn't pan out to be and no longer there. It was right not to be there. 
And yeah, I'm kind of looking for my next move at the moment, but knowing that I need to make the move that's right for me and not that's right for my ego or for my CV or for my passion. It's about doing what I'm going to be good at. And I feel good about that right now. I feel quite comfortable in the person I am right now. So you might not see light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't. I never saw a way that I was ever going to get a relationship back with my kids. And that was the key thing at that point. And by then, I didn't have the support of my blood family. And obviously, I'd lost my brother, who would have been my key support. But it changes. Things change. You just don't see that. You don't see the possibility of it. So allow the possibility of it and allow yourself some kindness. I like both points. I think I get nervous when we discuss in public in very specific ways the rumination because it catches on, right? People might listen to things and go, oh, I could do that. And I just hope if you're listening to that, that you don't feel that way and that you focus more on what John said around the optimism, the possibility, thinking about possibilities, be kind to yourself. I think saying to yourself, you've got something to offer, I think is like the easiest thing. And you've got to work out how to, how to believe in it, how to believe that when you say it to yourself. And maybe it's by looking at things you've done in life that have been useful to at least a person if you need to validate yourself based on other people. And then it's just this, it can be this slow rebuild. John, any final thoughts? Just really to kind of say, look, you know, we've all struggled. And one of the great things that I've learned through Twitter, and not only through Twitter, but is that a lot of what I've been feeling, we've all been feeling to various degrees. It's, it's been a fucking hard few years. You know, the world has been upside down for all of us. And everybody has felt vulnerable. You're not alone. You're not alone. And you're not the only person going through what you're going through. You might be the only person feeling the pain and you might be the only person that you're willing to share the pain with. But there's a lot of people going through similar out there. And if this interview helps one person in the same way that Mark and Derek's isolated talks certainly opened my eyes to a different way of feeling, that was still before I was ready to go. But, you know, it kind of it opened my eyes to being much more introspective and allowing myself a lot more space. Do that. It doesn't make you weak. I know I'm bloody good at my job. I know that my next role I'll do really well at. And I've just left a business that I would have loved to have spent more time in. But it doesn't matter because I'm a whole human coming out of it. And I wasn't while I was there. I think that's the important thing. You have to live for you. Don't judge yourself from an external position that doesn't exist. John, thank you for sharing all of this with us today. May you find some plateaus in between the ups and the downs and may you do what the king's horses and all the king's men did not do for Humpty Dumpty and put yourself back together. It can be a life's journey, you know, that could be the rest of the life, could be a decade, who knows. But the thing is, if you sense yourself as a creative individual, super optimistic thing to be a creative individual in this world, right? You get to, you have to put things out into the world to try to change it. And I think creativity can feel like a curse and a blessing at times, but at the same time, Creativity is possibility, and that's a useful energy to try to connect with as, as people are going through these dark times. It's hard to end a conversation like this in a way that won't sound trite, so I'm going to end it there. Give us your Twitter handle again. You mentioned it earlier. Johnny Ego. All right. John Lyons, thank you very much for being here on Sweathead today. Thank you, Mark. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If it's your first time here, please subscribe. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or leave a kind rating. For more information about our strategy classes, events, and books, visit www.sweathead.com. And yes, you can find us on Instagram at, at Sweathead.